Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Repeal and replace is still alive, my friends. That's the latest we can give you. Buck Sexton here with you all. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you. Uh, The Senate took some action. Uh, The Senate decided that they would actually do something today, and they are moving forward. They are moving forward on the health care debate and discussion. The motion to proceed narrowly, narrowly made its way through. But before the Senate was even able to vote, and I will give you those particulars in just a moment, before the Senate was able to do it, uh, they, well... They had to deal with people shouting stuff because that's the way that that's the way to get your point across in a debate. Start screaming stuff. After the Asian age. Sergeant Arms will restore order in the chamber. Sergeant Arms will restore order in the chamber, please. Kill the bill, they're yelling. Kill the bill. I think they went on also to yell shame. Uh, progressive activists like to take quotes from Game of Thrones. Uh, they like to yell shame, shame at, at people. But kill the bill, don't kill us is what they were screaming. So you, you know that the left is going to be rational about this whole process. You can expect that. And the Democrats aren't going to be any better, by the way. You got Bernie Sanders out there. You know, one day he's like, it's going to kill thousands of people. And the next day it's like, Bernie, you said it's going to kill all these people. That's not helpful in a discussion about the best way forward on health care policy. And he's like, I didn't say that. It's like, well, Bernie, you did. You did, in fact, Bernie. You did, burn. You said it. Uh, but now we have to deal with the, well, let me, before I get into the, the next step and what's going to happen and the debate, uh, such as it is, we had a couple things happen. First of all, it was 50 votes. 50 votes was all that the Senate was able to muster. The GOP, they had 52, but uh, Collins and Murkowski, no surprises there. They, Those senators decided they were, they were a no-go on the motion to proceed. Not going to be a part of this one. And so it took the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Pence to get this thing through. 20. On this vote, the yeas are 50 and the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the vice president votes in the affirmative and the motion is agreed to. It says a lot about the current state of the Senate that a motion to proceed, uh, people are saying this is testing the water or or it's preparing for much more substantive uh, changes to Obamacare that will happen as a result of this now. This is going to be difficult every step of the way. Uh, We barely got to this phase. And one of the the biggest events of today, other than 
the uh, one of the biggest events today, other than, of course, the motion to proceed getting through with a 50, the 50 plus one, the plus one here being the vice president, was the return of John McCain, Senator McCain, uh, who had some actually gave a, a worthwhile and interesting and uh, a speech that you should if you get a chance. Well, you can just listen to this show and I'll play some parts of it for you. Um First of all, he had some nice words to say about the Senate and about the whole deliberative body of which he is a part. No surprise there. The man uh, was recently diagnosed with brain cancer, and uh, our sympathy and prayers for him and, and his family, of course. He has re- returned from that difficult diagnosis. He also had a, a procedure. You could see him if you saw the, the video of this on TV. He is still recovering from a procedure, or I believe, removed something above his eye. Uh, but he now has to deal with a cancer diagnosis. He returned to the Senate and had some some strong words, some worthwhile things to say about, well, first, the Senate. 20. I had another long, if not as long, career before I arrived here, another profession that was profoundly rewarding and in which I had experiences and friendships that I revere. But make no mistake, my service here is the most important job I've had in my life. And I'm so grateful, so grateful to the people of Arizona for the privilege, for the honor of serving here and the opportunities it gives me to play a small role in the history of the country that I love. He is speaking about his affection for the Senate. He's been a member of the Senate for 30 years, which is He's been a senator almost as long as I've been alive. Um, he then went on, though, to talk about how this Senate has not been, you know, I, I don't like gauging productivity by number of laws. In fact, I think that every law that the Congress passes should be a necessary law. That, that There should be some very obvious justification for why they're doing what they're doing. It, it, this should not be... Uh, all of these parliamentary tricks and putting pork into things and all the different procedural issues that cloud the day-to-day workings of the Congress, we should know. Why are you do- Why are you passing this law? Why are you doing this? Um, what is the purpose of this? In fact, I think that a lot of congressional action should involve either clarifying or repealing laws, not just repeal and replace of Obamacare, but repealing laws that shouldn't be on the books at all. Although I guess that's now just a small government conservative dream. It feels like no one really talks these days about actually paring back the scope of the federal government and not just the regulations, but also federal criminal statutes. There's so much that's been piled on to the uh, government's plate over now decades and decades of overreach on top of overreach. But he spoke, uh, Senator McCain, whom I look, I like the, the the man's service to his country is is uh, heroic. And, and that's something that we all agree on uh, when he is described as a maverick. You will notice that he's only a maverick when he votes with Democrats on something. That's when the media pulls out the maverick card when he is maybe in the middle and goes with the Republicans on something. Then that's never he's never the maverick. Then when it's unexpected and goes to the right, it's. Party, party first, tribal politics, it's not anything that uh, people should 
praise or be be happy about. But when he, of course, breaks with Republicans and goes with the Democrats on something, then immediately he'll be, oh, he's a maverick. Oh, he's a maverick. Um, but he did, uh, first of all, he's re- returning from a very difficult situation. And so just on, on a human level, on a person-to-person level, it's something to be uh, applauded and, and, like I said, uh, thoughts and prayers for him and his family. But on the policy here, well, we're not sure where he's going he's gonna to come down on the issue. He was a necessary vote, though, without Senator McCain coming back. And there were some questions whether he would because of his health. Without Senator McCain coming back for this vote, you don't even get to the motion to proceed. So uh, he was absolutely necessary in this process today. But he said that, and this goes back to what I was speaking about a minute ago, which has to do with a productive Senate. What is a productive Senate? It's not, oh, we, sh- we did 100 laws this year. Let's do 100 laws or 100 bills. Let's um, uh, pass 100 bills next year. No, that, that, that's not what I want to see. But on health care, we've been made a lot of promises. And the senators on both sides have been talking about this issue now for years. Here we are. It's, it's really the moment of truth for the GOP, and so far, it has been an underwhelming response to the moment from the GOP. In fact, as Senator McCain pointed out, other than Gorsuch, which Gorsuch on the Supreme Court is pretty awesome, and that is a legacy of the Trump administration and Trump's victory that uh, will be among the most important, and it's already there. Just wait, though, until another... Supreme Court seat, if it does, opens up and you will see a media and Democrat Party ferocity unlike unlike anything in in decades, I think, when it comes to judicial picks. Uh, but you had John McCain saying, look, we we've got Gorsuch, but we need to do more than just Gorsuch. Getting nothing done, my friends. We're getting nothing done. And all we've really done this year is confirm Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. So they need to do more. Uh, that's where we are right now. We don't know a whole lot more than that, though. We, we have the old Senate bill, but we don't know if we're going to have enough even GOP senators to push this through. And whatever happens, are we going to get repeal in place? We're seeing different things every day. It's just, at this point, it's, it's just not clear. Um in fact, Senator McCain, who was necessary for the motion to proceed vote today, went on to say that he, he's not even sure that he's going to vote for the bill that he's putting forward with the motion to proceed. I voted for the motion to proceed to allow debate to continue and amendments to be offered. I will not vote for this bill as it is today. It's a shell of a bill right now. We all know that. I have changes urged by my state's governor that will have to be included to earn my support for final passage of any bill. And let's not forget that there are those who are saying that just bringing the issue back up and saying we're going to approach it once more, that doesn't cut it. Repeal and replace means repeal. I I know the way that the discussions have been going in recent weeks. We talk about partial repeal or repealing parts of Obamacare. We weren't told parts of it. We were told Obamacare would be repealed, that there might be a period of time where the Congress writes in a, uh, a, a sort of grace period for the insurance companies and those who currently have plans under the individual 
uh, market exchanges established by Obamacare that they'd have time to figure out what's going on. And then there would be a new health care plan that is passed by the Republicans. But we were always told that it would be that Obamacare would no longer be the law of the land. That's that was central to the GOP's message stretching back for years, almost a decade now of saying that they would repeal. And some in the Senate, whether you think that they're just grandstanding or not, there are a few who are saying that, look, this is great. This is all well and good that we've got this motion to proceed going, but this is about health care. This matters to the American people, matters to every man, woman, and child in this country. Enormous impact on our economy. This is not something that you can just sort of, kind of, sort of, maybe do. And people are watching. The American people are paying attention. And we were promised, or rather, this from the senator's perspective, they promised, uh, or we promised from the senator's perspective, that there would be repeal. And some, like Senator Rand Paul, are not going to budge easily from a full repeal. The law that Obama signed is gone. That's what repeal It doesn't mean that there are some parts of it that are changed. It means the law is gone. Otherwise, we're talking about something else. And we should be... Uh, honest about that. We should be clear on that. And here's what Senator Rand Paul had to say. What they're putting forward isn't repeal and it becomes a big, huge insurance bailout. So if that's all we're going to be voting on, I'm not for it. But I have told them, look, I will compromise. I'll vote to get on the bill, but I want at least the assurance that we're going to have one vote on what conservatives promised, which was a clean repeal of Obamacare. And I've been saying this for a week. Last week, they said they were going to do this. This week, they're saying, well, it's unknown. We might do what we might do. And uh, that, frankly, is not good enough. I think conservatives uh, have been treated shabbily in the process. They have loaded this bill with pork. It's become a pork fest. And frankly, I want to vote on a clean repeal. And if I'm given that assurance, I will vote for it. I I would like to see. I, I believe a lot of us would like to see who votes for a clean repeal and who does not. I, I think that's um I think that's something that we should we should know. People should go on the record. Senators should go on the record. We should know who is in favor of a repeal and who's not. We we know Murkowski, Collins, but there's some Republicans who clearly are never gonna be in favor of a repeal. But there might be others. And this is why we have the procedures that are in place to have votes that are counted and People on the record. We should know. We are paying their salaries. They are elected representatives. They are representing, well, in the case of senators, states. And the voters in those states should know what the reality is of the position of various politicians on the issue of Obamacare. Only way we can know that is if there is a full repeal vote. So we will see if we get there. I am... in wait-and-see mode on this, my friends. I I, I think that, sure, this has been resuscitated as an issue i remember a couple weeks ago we're talking about oh we're going to move on to taxes again no 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 focus back on health care but where does it go from here you see i'm not sure the republicans have done the fundamental groundwork of explaining to the american people that a better health care system is going to require people to not just be able to make choices but to live with the decisions with the choices that they make in the health care market so that's a discussion that we need to be having as a country, and we're not having it. All right, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Much more show coming your way. We'll be right back. Team of what we're going to be hitting in the rest of the show here in the Freedom Hunt, I will be talking to you about uh, the 
president's speech last night in front of the Boy Scouts of America later on in the show. We've got some audio of that. It's quite an interesting uh, interesting scene. Um, and, of course, the media's reaction to it was their usual hysteria. And uh, we will also be talking about, well, a, a medical issue that is getting some attention in The Guardian that I think could have some very uh, damaging long-term implications for, I don't know how else to say it, for humanity. Uh, and we'll talk about the former senior intelligence officials who were speaking at the Aspen uh, Institute Security Forum out in Aspen, Colorado. Hello, Aspen. Wow. It's the f- best slopes in the country. Um, they uh, they said that, one of them at least said, uh, the former CIA director under Obama, that they, he hoped that if Trump were to transgress even further that the executive branch, people in the executive branch would not obey those kinds of orders. I don't know. He left it a little vague, but it sounded pretty much like, you know, intra intra government nullification of executive orders from executive branch officials. Because even if you think that Trump shouldn't fire Mueller, uh, the deal, Trump, Mueller is fireable. That, that, that is not that people keep saying, oh, it for a constitutional crisis. They seem to not know what the Constitution allows and says and how the separation of powers works. It does not force a constitutional crisis. Uh, this, is, this reminds me of when people were saying, well, you know, o- Obama is frustrated that the Congress isn't doing enough, so he's going to go around them. Well, no, that's actually not how it works. The, the Congress writes laws, the president signs them into law, the president is the head of the executive branch and the commander-in-chief, but the president doesn't just get to say, well, I, I want a law that you're not giving me, so I'm just going to make it up. And that's what President Obama was doing, right? This is So you, you see this. People seem to forget in the media, they seem to forget that there are, there are in fact, rules here, that this is not just completely wide open to uh, interpretation. There are uh, procedures in place, and okay. Well, anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'll get more into the uh, possibility of a Mueller firing, and we'll also talk next hour about, well, maybe even this hour, but we'll definitely get to the next hour about the whole Jeff Sessions situation. I, I, I like Jeff Sessions. I don't understand what's the thought process behind the recent Trumpisms directed at Sessions, but I'll, I'll get into that in some details. We'll be uh, talking about that for sure. Um, and then some social justice stuff later on in the show. I've got some updates on that for you. And uh, all co- we got a, a packed show today with all sorts of stuff. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Do um, we give a ring? We can chat about health care and we are going to because I've given you the—we had the triumphant return of John McCain today to the Senate. Very happy for him. We have the motion to proceed going forward just barely. Well, what's going to happen now? What does the health care debate in the Senate look like? What does the final bill look like? What is President Trump going to sign into law if he signs anything into law here? Uh, well, I'll give you my best— my best estimate of what that will be and how that will go in uh, just a few teams. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Okay, so we've got the motion to proceed vote. It goes through. Mike Pence, he's the tiebreaker. Woohoo! Now what happens? 
Well, you're going to get to a floor debate on the effort to change the Affordable Care Act. You got Rand Paul, as I played for you before, saying that he expects there to be a clean repeal vote of the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare. Anything that comes out of this process that becomes law, we should all know, would be uh, reasonably considered to be Trump care. So that's whatever Trump signs will be Trump care. Um, and I think he, he realizes that. I think the president knows that. And uh, we now look at what happens on the Senate floor, though. And here's you got you got some skeptics out there. And I'm I don't know if I would say I, I am not a cynic, but a skeptic. That might be a fair way to put it on the Senate actually getting done anything particularly uh, impressive is way too strong a word. Um, a- a- anything that really moves the ball forward, that uh, that moves the chains in the football lingo, um, anything that does that, I'm in very much to wait and see. Uh, you have Senator Angus King, an independent from Maine, which uh, the, the former, I think he was a former Republican, right? These former Republicans that then go independent are always... Always the worst Republicans. Anyway, he's up in Maine, and he, he he had a little fun with the unknown, the unknown unknowns of the healthcare debate right now. Because what are we debating? Well, it's not easy to tell when you're not sure exactly what's going to be put forward. Here's what he said on uh, CNN to Allison Camarota. What plan are you voting on today for healthcare? Let me give you a a, a quick synopsis of what I know about the bill that we're going to be voting on this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm absolutely serious. There is no one who knows. I talked to two senior Republicans last Thursday afternoon. I said, what are we going to be voting on on Tuesday? They said, we have no idea. Uh, I think it's going to be the House bill, but then there may be a substitute amendment. And it's... I've never seen a process like this. Now, he's not as funny as he seems to think he is, I guess, but he does make a point there about, well, what exactly is the Senate going to be doing now? What are they going to be voting on? And if we get to, by the way, in in the last moments, the Republican holdouts who were the necessary necessary votes to get to the motion to proceed, you had— Senators Rand Paul, Dean Heller, Rob Portman, and Shelley Moore Capito, who went with the motion to proceed vote. It was, uh, yeah, what was it? Uh, I already said a couple of a couple of holdouts were the ones that made it turn into the vice president as the tie-breaking vote. Uh, Murkowski and Collins. So you got independents saying some stuff there, which it, there's no. No surprise that you would have an independent from Maine saying, oh, we're not really sure what's going to what's going to happen here. Um, You have some others, though, who are who have their who have their concerns about this. Um, For example, uh, you. Oh, wait, wait, before I get to that. Our, our friend Lonnie Chen had a little uh, throwdown on MSNBC over Ted Cruz's health plan with uh, Ali Velsh. I, I didn't even, I'm going to just tell you this. I haven't even heard this clip. I just saw the description as I was looking for another one. And uh, I just want to hear what our friend Lonnie has to say here. Third. 
there's no plan under which you get lower premiums except for that very strange Ted Cruz plan, which basically offers you uh, a low premium in exchange for a box of Band-Aids and hope nothing bad happens to you. We have to be realistic about this, which is that there are things we can do to slow the rate of growth of premiums, and certainly there are things we can do to offer more choices for people that might involve picking plans that do have lower premiums, yes, less benefits, but also lower premiums. So there are options out there. Right, but, but the you would agree, Lonnie, as, a, as an expert so, on so this, confusing. as an expert on this, you would, under, you would agree that at some point it's just garbage, right? The stuff that Ted Cruz is peddling is very low premiums for virtually non-existent health coverage. Well, look, there are some people, what this is about, Ali, ultimately, is what kind of plan do people want? That's the point that I think Ted Cruz is trying to get there. So I wouldn't call it complete garbage. The notion that people ought to have some optionality over the plan that suits them best, I don't think is a garbage idea at all. In fact, if you've got someone who's relatively healthy, who's doing relatively well financially, they may make a very different set of decisions than someone who's not doing as well or who's sicker. So that's why you need special protections nice, in place. Nice work from for there. Let, let me break down what the real, the real back and forth is. You see this MSNBC host, Velshi, and he's representing a, a common version of events from the Democrat side of this whole health care debate. He keeps conflating coverage with care. Coverage is an insurance term, meaning that you have a risk profile. You pay a certain amount of money into a pool of people that are paying that money based on a risk profile, although that's been Obamacare largely got rid of that with community rating. But. You're, the way insurance actually works, because we don't really have health insurance, as I say, we have subsidized health care with government mandates uh, all over the place, uh, is that you pay a, a, you know, $100 a month, whatever it may be. And up to a certain level, you're paying out of pocket for whatever the, is, the issue is that's covered. If you're paying car insurance, you pay $100 a month. And if you get into an accident, up to $3,000 or up to $1,000, whatever your deductible is, that comes out of your pocket for any accident, car-related expenses. Anything beyond that, on, assuming that it's part of your policy, then the insurance kicks in. That's insurance. What the Democrats are talking about is health care, meaning that you pay $100 a month so that when you go to the doc every visit to the doctor is going to be you know dramatically less expensive out of your pocket. Uh, every medical procedure you want to have, if you want to do acupuncture, if you want to do uh, go to um, you know, I don't know, whatever it may be, right? All kinds of different counseling and therapy and everything, you know, physical therapy, whatever it may be. That's all coming out of the insurance pool, but that's not sustainable. And already you have insurance that won't cover this, won't cover that. Even if you have private insurance, you deal with this all the time. But they, they talk about He says garbage. Velshi says garbage insurance. What he really means is that they want to call an insurance, but, but what they're trying to offer people is health care that someone else is paying for. It's not insurance. Insurance is a way of mitigating against risk. But if you're just saying that every time you do anything in the health, you're uh, your prescription drugs, a visit to the doctor. I mean, if that is all under the insurance umbrella, then you're just talking about health care. You're not talking about insurance. Um, and what Lonnie was getting at there is, well, people may decide that they actually do just want to pay $100 a month and that their first $5,000 or $3,000 or whatever it may be of health care expenditures comes out of pocket but if they get a terrible disease diagnosis, if they get hit by a car and they're in the hospital for a week, I mean, 
then they're in, then that's insurance. This is the fundamental debate, right? This is what is happening. We're ta- we talk about this in all these coded terms, and all there's so much of a mess, and there's so much of a muddying of the waters that occurs here on purpose. Because you have politicians that are trying to sell people on what is popular. What's popular is someone else will pay for you to have health care. That's what, and di- finding different ways to say that is what's popular. What would be the truth is that health care is a commodity. There is scarcity in health care. I'm not saying that there's no, you know, that, that we are in the midst of a health care desert or something. But health care is a, is, a scar- is a finite commodity. And you can't just have somebody else paying for all of everyone else's health care all the time because there's simply just not enough money and there's not enough capacity in the system for that. So you have to allow there to be market-based decisions and uh, decisions and choices. You know, I could have had a very expensive ankle surgery years ago. Why didn't I do it? Because of the recovery period and because it's very expensive, even with insurance. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to not do that. If somebody else was picking up literally 100% of the tab and all of the physical therapy and everything, I might might have done it. But that wasn't my reality. Now, if you ever see me walking around, you may be like, why does Buck limp a little bit? Well, that's why, because I was supposed to have an ankle surgery that I never had. But I responded to prices. I responded to costs. Politicians right now are, are lying to you. They're telling you that none of that matters, and that's not possible. That's not possible. Uh, saying that we're going to just change around the individual mandate and we're going to make it subsidies or, or tax credits, rather. I mean, the, the fundamental problems will still exist until you allow people to make choices about insurance for their health care and until there is an understanding with the American people that there will be consequences to those choices, as in if you don't have to buy insurance and you choose not to buy insurance despite efforts by the government to make it easier for you to buy insurance and then you get really sick yes you will not be denied life-saving care but you're going to go bankrupt that's not a fun conversation no one wants to have that conversation right no one wants to say that or very few people want to say that all the other stuff you're hearing is noise oh we're going to have a great plan a fantastic plan it's going to cover all this stuff that's what we were promised with obamacare it's simply not possible look at california They're like, we're going to do single payer. And then they had the people that crunch numbers crunch those numbers for single payer in one state. And it was more than the entire state budget would have bankrupted California. California would be done. Why is that? It's just people's health care. Well, if you pay for everyone's health care out of the public trough, there's no one who's really being a steward of that capital in a meaningful way. And it's just going to be wildly expensive. And you also have all of the other problems of whether the market is incentivized to have more efficient, better health care, people trying to come up with new ways, better ways of treating diseases, treating ailments. Anyway, this is I'm not hearing this. I'm hearing a lot of, oh, we're going to, you know, Medicaid for 10 years. We're going to change this. And, you know, you'll be able to get in your state. will make determinations about what's an acceptable plan, not just Obamacare. By the way, what I mean. I'd rather have my state than the federal government. I, mean, I do believe in federalism. I'd rather have the state making these decisions about health care than the federal government. But why can't I just buy the health care plan I want to buy? I mean, let's take Occam's razor to this thing. Why can't I just buy a health care plan that's offered me by a company and I read the contract and it says we will cover these things. These are your costs. Here's what we cover. That's it. This, and you pay your premiums and you're covered. 
until Republicans can answer that for me, I, I think they're just it's a lot of happy dance out there. It's a lot of nonsense and not really getting to the core of the problem. And that's why I'm a little a, uh, cynical, too strong. Um, I'm not yet sold that Republicans are going to do anything here. I think this whole thing could still collapse. I know it's not what people want to hear, but we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll be right back. We'll talk about it more. Uh, Republicans have been talking about this for the last seven years. Look, we're at a critical moment. We have a decision to make of whether we want to have a patient-centered uh, health care focus or whether we want the Democrats who have now admitted within the last few days that Obamacare, ne Obamacare needs to be replaced, but they want to replace it with a single-payer system. It would be the greatest government expansion uh, in decades. Inaction is simply not an option at this point, and Senate Republicans need to step up and they need to make sure that we repeal and replace Obamacare with a system that functions and a system that's sustainable. I... So you have Sarah Huckabee Sanders here saying that inaction is, uh, is not a problem, uh, saying that there's no... No way that the I'm sorry, inaction is not an option. Um, there, there's no way that they can go forward here and uh, or or not go forward. And I, I I know where she's coming from, and she's messaging what the Republicans want her to, and and I get that. Uh, but but I got there's some problems here. Oh, you know you got oh Mitch McConnell by the way also saying we need to take action before I get into the problems. Mitch McConnell. Here's what Mitch McConnell has to say. Mitch McConnell saying inaction is not an option as well. We finally have an administration that cares about those suffering under Obamacare's failures and a president who will sign a law to actually do something about it. We have a House that recently passed its own legislation to help address these problems, and we have a Senate with a great chance before us to do our part now. If other senators agree and join me in voting yes on the motion to proceed, we can move one step closer to sending legislation to the president. I hope everyone will seize the moment. I certainly will. Inaction will do nothing to solve Obamacare's problems or bring relief to those who need it. Look, I, I agree with Mitch McConnell that inaction is a bad idea. And I agree with the Senate Majority Leader here that Republicans need to fix this whole situation, but I'm just not sure they're going to do it because of the uh, various politicians, career politicians in D.C. on the GOP side of the aisle who would rather keep their jobs than do something bold and do something that really changes the health care paradigm because they're selfish. And they're cowards. I just think we should say it. That's what it really comes down to. And I'm not the only one who has this who has this concern. I know I'm sure a lot of you listening are like, yeah, Buck, I don't think they're gonna I don't think the Republicans are gonna get this thing done. Um here's what uh John Boehner. Remember John Boehner? Yeah, hey. Uh John Boehner was in Vegas last week and the Washington Post obtained some audio. Gosh, Republicans can't say anything anywhere without thinking there must be a microphone on and it's going to end up in the newspapers. Uh, Boehner, well, I'll let you hear what Boehner said, according to Washington Post, which obtained this audio from this event out in Vegas, because what is said in Vegas clearly does not stay in Vegas. Here we are, you know, seven months into uh, uh, this year, 
and yet uh, they've not passed this bill. Now, they're, never, they're not going to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's been around too long. And the American people have gotten accustomed to it. Uh, governors have gotten accustomed to this Medicaid expansion. And so trying to pull it back is, is really not going to work. I hope he's wrong, but at this point, based on what I've seen and based on how close this motion to proceed vote in the Senate was today, I would not I would not bet against his statement here. I would not bet against him. I think that there is a very real possibility that uh, we are, in fact, in an impossible— well, it's not impossible. Republicans are making it impossible, but we are in a position where— uh, Obamacare has gotten the uh, the realities of that law have extended too far into too many systems and hospitals and lobbies and everything else uh, for this to just go away entirely. I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope so. Um, I'm wait. I'm waiting to come back on air and tell you. You know what? The Republicans surprised me. They need to take action, but it has to be meaningful. Repeal and replace is what. They need to do. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, Team Buck, welcome back. And we are joined by our guest and friend, Vince Kalanis. He is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief. And he's got a lot to talk to us about today because much is happening in the world of politics and America more broadly. Mr. Kalanis, great to have you, sir. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Buck. All right. Uh, so triumphant return to the Senate for Senator John McCain today. Where are we now in your estimation on this health care bill? It seems like we could only say that it's the end of this new beginning. I don't know. Well, what's going to happen now? Well, this is it seems like a meaningful victory for President Trump and for Mitch McConnell, who's uh, for a while now promised that something would be done on repealing Obamacare to some extent. Um, this motion to proceed is meaningful because it forces uh, the the bill into a position where they can now vote on amendments to begin the process of repealing Obamacare through through re- reconciliation, requiring just a majority of votes in the Senate in order to pass those things. Um, but they got the 51 votes they needed. They needed Mike Pence for a tiebreaker, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski with two no votes among Republicans. Uh, but this is, again, what they could accomplish. And, and, and you knew that this thing had a real chance when, you, when we began to hear that John McCain, of all people, was going to be flying in to take this vote. That was a, the clearest sign, if any, uh, that, that Mitch McConnell felt like he had enough votes so long as McCain was there to pull that lever. And for him to have just come out of surgery uh, and, of course, have that brain cancer diagnosis and now walk into the Senate, he was – he was heralded upon return by the Republicans, uh, celebrated for returning to the chamber, and he voted in favor of getting this thing into a position where they might actually have some success for the first time in a long time on repealing elements of Obamacare. So we'll see We'll see what they can do with that. I mean, look, they turned guys like Rand Paul. They actually got him to vote for this thing, suggesting that, that even Rand Paul has some belief that this is a very this is an actual repeal effort and not just a patchwork to keep Obamacare in place. Let's assume, Vince, that everything goes according to plan here. What are the next steps uh, for the Senate and then for the Congress? Uh, what, what happens after this? Well, I, it's still unclear precisely what this thing is going to end up like. Um, my, my understanding is that they're going to come have to come through. They'll have to go through some voting 
to figure out what the bill looks like coming out of the Senate and then conference with the House on the on the end product. Um, but you know what we know is that Mitch McConnell uh, had originally sought to have an instant real repeal and replace the BCRA is what the acronym was, and um, they wanted to you know so they they modified that a couple times, including getting Ted Cruz's amendment in place, which would allow people to go into the marketplace and buy plans that didn't meet all of the Obamacare requirements in terms of minimum coverage, meaning you'd pay far less in premiums under the Ted Cruz amendment. Uh, so that was a part of the BCRA. Additionally, there was an effort to try and simply repeal Obamacare and repeal it on a two-year delay and then ultimately use that two-year delay as time to come up with more replacement opportunities. Uh, so Republicans have still have a lot to work through. But this first major hurdle uh, is, has been has been crossed, and it's a procedural vote, but it's an important one, and it's going to allow now um, Obamacare the, the Obamacare itself to be a little bit more vulnerable, and these Republicans to take an, to take a stab at actually repealing elements of it. We're speaking to Vince Colonese, he's the Daily Caller's editor in chief. Uh, it's been a rough few days here, Vince, for Attorney General Jeff Sessions. What do you make of all this? I, I think that this is, uh, well, I want to hear what you think first, actually, and then I'll tell everybody what I think later. What do you think? Sure. Well, I'm I'm struck by it for a number of reasons. I think a lot of people point out the obvious. Jeff Sessions was Trump's earliest senator supporter. Um, even before Jeff Sessions endorsed President Trump, I believe it was sometime in 2015, he, he went out to Mobile, Alabama, his hometown, and stood on a stage with, with, with Trump and threw a Make America Great Again hat on. Even his staff at the time was surprised that Jeff Sessions went went that far. Uh, so I, I, you know, everyone's always remembered that you know Sessions was among his earliest supporters. That's a point that the president of the United States is discounting today. He did an interview with the Wall Street Journal. He kind of downplayed that, said it's not, you know not that big of a deal. There was a lot of people in Alabama who supported Trump. Therefore, why wouldn't their senator look at that support and decide that he wants to be a part of that movement? Um, I am. I am very much surprised by the way that President Trump has treated Jeff Sessions. Uh, Sessions, by all accounts, made a good faith effort to recuse himself from any investigations that were related to the Trump campaign, given his involvement in the campaign. And he's received support from people, including Rudy Giuliani, who has been floated as a replacement for Jeff Sessions. So, I mean, this is this is something that I think has left a lot of Trump supporters confused, Not not least of all. Because Jeff Sessions is considered somewhat the ideological mooring of Trump's uh, presidency. He's the guy who came, who, who really has the chops for being hawkish on things like immigration and on whom Trump has relied. Trump, even, Trump even has one of Jeff Sessions' former top staffers, Stephen Miller, working very closely with him to formulate policy. So this, this comes very much as a surprise to people who have watched the ideal ideological underpinnings of the Trump administration. What are you hearing from your folks down in in D.C. about whether there are other shakeups that are are planned for the communications team? I mean, you got uh, Scaramucci down there now, down there now, and he's already tossed somebody today. Uh, do you think that there's other stuff coming? Well, he certainly is making it sound that way. His his goal is, uh, it, you know, he announced it very early on here. It's been on the Sunday shows this weekend. He was very clear that his goal is to go after leaks, and he believes they're in the White House and they need to be rooted out. And he's and we've had, we've heard some reports that he's I believe he said this out loud. I'm mixing things up, but I know that um you know in addition to this firing today, he basically said you know you help me with this, stop the leaks, 
um, or, or we will continue to fire. He's like, I don't care if we get down all the way to Sarah, meaning Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and him, uh, just literally firing everyone. His job right now, as he sees it, is to handle these leaks and begin firing people um, in order to satisfy what appears to be a dominant need of the president. Um, this, this is definitely a different strategy for a communications professional in the White House, um, certainly different than what Sean Spicer was doing, Mike Dubke, the former communications director. Anthony Scaramucci has, as far as anyone can tell, been given a very broad permission slip to go in and try and clean up this White House to get it to the point that it's the Trump's liking. Yeah, we got Vince uh, Colonies of the Daily Callers, editor in chief, on the line here. Uh, there was I just saw this right before we brought you on, Vince. That uh, what is the st- status right now of concealed carry in D.C.? I see this is up on DailyCaller.com right now. A court, a D.C. Circuit Court, had said that concealed carry may be okay in D.C. That seems to be quite a turnaround. Yeah, I I, um, I saw that cross earlier, and I know our reporters are working on it. I can't give you a detailed report because I'm not fully briefed on it. But I do know that any any attempt to get closer to a more liberal Second Amendment standard within the District of Columbia would be very welcome, especially among its more conservative residents. You just look at a city nearby, like Baltimore, wherein they're considering even stricter gun restrictions Right now, they're, they're considering minimum sentences of a year on gun possession. Um, even the lawmakers in Baltimore are assessing this from the perspective of, well, we got to be careful. We don't want to penalize citizens who are merely trying to defend themselves with illegal guns. That's got to give you pause if you're a lawmaker in Baltimore. It, it should cause you to reconcile, like, wait a second, why do I have that position? Oh, yeah, that's right, because guns actually are used for self-defense, and those who commit crimes with them – are often are, are typically you know criminals themselves. Are you a district guy, or do you live in Virginia like a lot of other folks I know who love America? I live working... in Virginia like I live in Virginia like every Second Amendment. I was going to say I had a feeling you might be a Virginia guy who works in D.C. instead of a D.C. D.C. guy, just because it's so hard to. Uh, well, yeah, for a lot of you, you, you can't own a gun, basically. So there you go. It's an oasis of sanity when it comes to guns. For Ab- sure. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Vince Colonies, oh, he is on the Daily Caller. He's the editor in chief. Go read dailycaller.com for his latest. And Vince, always great to have you, sir. Come back and hang out at the Freedom Hut soon. Oh, my. Of course, Bucks. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Well, I got to tell you, it's a lot better for the Republicans to be focused on what's actually happening in the Senate than what you know, with this whole health care bill moving forward, motion to proceed, all this stuff. That's better than what was starting to become the biggest uh, news story in the country, which was the uh, possibility of Trump. Forget about firing the special counsel for a second, but Trump firing Jeff Sessions, his attorney general. I mean, Sessions was a very popular senator uh, in an incredibly safe seat and was one of the earliest people, prominent national level politicians to back Donald Trump's bid for the presidency. And Sessions is a I don't agree with him on everything. I find his stance on, for example, uh, I find his uh, position position on civil asset forfeiture to be just wrong. Uh, but he's an ethical guy. He is a conservative and he has shown nothing but loyalty to Trump all along. And yet now he's in that position with this administration where he's the administration figure 
that's catching a lot of the heat. Uh, Trump put out on Twitter the following. So why aren't the committees and investigators and, of course, our beleaguered AG, Attorney General, looking into crooked Hillary's crimes and Russia relations? Uh, He tweeted that out and people are saying, hold on a minute, hold on a second. What is with the president doing that? He also had referred to Sessions uh, and the I mean, he tweeted out Attorney General Jeff Sessions has taken a very weak position on Hillary Clinton crimes where emails and DNC server and Intel leakers. Now, okay, a couple of things here. First of all, on Intel leakers, there you can't say that Sessions has been weak because we're not aware of any Intel leaker who's been found that Sessions has gone easy on, right? So that's not a, that's not a fair criticism from the president at all. Uh, and all, it's very hard to find leakers, especially the big leakers who know what they're doing, right? The, the accidental leakers are the ones that usually get nailed the intentional and important leakers know what they're doing and so they cover it up and are very careful Uh, they're very careful about how they communicate so donald trump tweeting out attorney general jeff sessions has taken a very weak position on hillary clinton crimes is just making all of this more difficult for his attorney general i mean does he really expect that trump will come out, I'm sorry, that Sessions will come out and say that he's going to just reopen the Hillary email investigation. I mean, that's going to be the political equivalent of of thermonuclear war, I think. The prospect of Hillary being prosecuted under this administration after the previous administration gave her a pass. I know some of you are thinking right now, come on, Buck, we know what happened. The fix was in, and I get that. But the optics of this are very difficult for the administration. I mean, the way that this will play out is that Trump is trying to distract from Russia and his Russia collusion, which, again, I don't believe was real, but that's what they'll all be saying. And that there will be pressure, I think, at that point on Republicans in Congress to take action against the president. And if you think that these Republicans in the Congress, I mean, look what's going on today with will they actually repeal and replace If you think that they are above uh, turning their backs to this president when things get really rough, I mean, I know you don't think that, right? We we all know. We all know that these Republicans in the House and Senate, uh, if the timing was right for them, not all of them, but a lot of them, I think, would be willing to play the, well, this is a bipartisan issue card uh, on whether or not the administration has acted entirely appropriately with regard to the DOJ and all the stuff going on with the special counsel. So Trump is getting is saying some really tough stuff about Sessions here. Uh, there have been media reports floating out there that maybe uh, Rudy Giuliani would be a replacement for Sessions. And I'm just like, wow, that, uh, first of all, think about this, what the message this would send to the base, the conservative base. You've got Sessions, who is a conservative who is very, particularly tough on immigration issues, which is hard among the Republicans. Not a lot of Republicans are as strong on immigration as they pretend to be, and very few Republicans these days even really pretend to be all that tough on immigration. So Sessions is an anomaly in that sense, and it's very necessary for the Trump administration if they're going to, if Donald Trump is going to follow through on his promises to crack down on illegals in this country and to secure the border, and to build a wall, and to get rid of cartels and gangs like MS-13, and to send them back to their country of origin, uh, countries of origin, 
then uh, you're going to need someone like Jeff Sessions, who is a believer, um, who wants to do the right thing on immigration and is willing to take the heat on it. Uh, Giuliani was fighting for sanctuary cities back in the day. Giuliani is a liberal Republican. We all know this. And I look, I grew up in New York City and I my family was here and I understand America's mayor. And after 9-11, there was a lot of uh, understandable national political momentum behind Rudy Giuliani, as well as because of the crime decreases here in the city of New York that occurred on his watch. But that was then. I mean, we're looking for what can be done right now to implement Trump's agenda. And Rudy Giuliani, I do not think, is the right man for that job. And then you have to think about on top of that, does Rudy, would, Rudy Giuliani, would Rudy Giuliani want the job of attorney general in an administration where the first attorney general only lasted six months, was nothing but loyal to the president and had done nothing wrong unless you want to view his stumbles on the Russia, uh, Russia hearings and what he said to Congress as doing something wrong. You, you could take that position. But I think that anyone looking at this would understand that there would be major concerns from the perspective of somebody like Rudy Giuliani about taking such a job. And I don't think it's going to happen. I, I've got to say, I know that there are uh, there's a big shakeup right now in the communication side of the White House, but that's been a long time in coming. We've been reading about those reports on this administration for many months. There's really no surprise with any of that. Uh, maybe some of the p- individual people who are going, but did anyone think that Sean Spicer was going to last out the year in that role? I certainly don't think so. And you've got Scaramucci down there now. He's engaged in a hunt for leakers from within the White House to get rid of them. And he's already, I think, said today there's another person from the White House communications shop who is out. But that's the comm shop. I mean, the attorney general who has to be confirmed and is a much higher profile position in terms of administration policy than anybody in the communication side of the White House, right? Anyone who's a West Wing, you know, West Wing comms person. Uh, attorney general is not something you just change up because you're in a bad mood. And I, I don't see Trump doing it. I think the media is fanning the flames on this even more. I know I've read the Trump tweets. I know that he's saying this, but I think he's venting his frustration and he just does that. A lot of other presidents would keep this to themselves, right? A lot of other presidents would decide that they wouldn't air this out for all the American people to see. But that's not how Trump operates. We know that. Trump lets it be known how he's feeling, literally, at any given time on Twitter. And he is letting the American people know, I think, that the whole Russia situation is unfair. He's really frustrated with it. He's sick of it. And I think at, at the end of the day, and I understand this Trump position because I, I believe it's fair for him to think this way, He knows that if this were the Obama administration, the attorney general would be an Obama confidant who would squash the investigation, wouldn't care what the media said. And by the way, the media would all go along with it anyway. And so there is at its uh, at its core, there is a an unfairness to all of this. There's a double standard. There's a, a hypocrisy that Trump, as somebody who just isn't used to having to stomach all this, is having a tough time with. And so he's lashing out. I think he's just lashing out. I do not think he's preparing the ground to get rid of Sessions. I do not see that happening. I think that uh, Sessions was one of the strongest picks. I mean, I think the strongest pick that Trump made would be Mattis. 
uh, as Secretary of Defense, and I think a lot of people, even people who don't like Trump or disagree with Trump, would agree with me on that. Mattis is strongest pick, but Sessions as Attorney General is high on the list in terms of making a choice that is constituted, you know, picking somebody who is sound from a constitutional perspective, who's a conservative, who will help with the agenda, who's strong in the right places, and who's just an ethical and decent public servant. And I think that's what Jeff Sessions really is. So I don't think Sessions is going anywhere. Don't buy into the media hype. I know you're not. And if I'm wrong on this, well, I'll come on and explain how I think I ended up being wrong. But I see that as very unlikely. I think Sessions is staying. I think Trump is just frustrated. And I think at the end of the day, they're going to hug it out. All right, team, we've got much more, including a discussion about those who think that Trump shouldn't be obeyed by his own executive branch. We'll be back with more on that. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I'm not entertained! The Buck is back. And if he's fired by Mr. Trump or attempted to be fired by Mr. Trump, I hope, I really hope that our members of Congress, our elected representatives, are going to stand up and say enough is enough and stop making apologies and excuses for things that are happening that really flout, I think, our system of, uh, of laws and government here. That's some pretty strong stuff from former CIA director John Brennan, who was out of that Aspen forum of uh, national security experts and uh, sharing his views, of course, on all things Trump and Mueller investigation. But in fact, uh, he went on even further to say that uh, he would hope that if Mueller was fired, remember, this is the former CIA director, everybody, supposed to be nonpartisan and intelligence professional, right? He's Obama's CIA director. Uh, But he went on to say that if, in fact, the Mueller investigation was ended, if Trump or one of his, uh, well, it would be the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, if the Deputy Attorney General fired uh, the special counsel here, Mueller, and shut down that investigation, that it would be incumbent upon other executive branch officials to refuse to take any more orders from Trump. Here's what he said. He's fired, and he's the president of the United States, so he could tell Rosenstein to fire him if he wants. But if he's fired, uh, what would you want Congress to do? First of all, I think it's the obligation of some executive branch officials to refuse to carry out uh, some of these orders that, uh, again, are inconsistent with what uh, this country is all about. Uh, But uh, I I would just hope that this is not going to be a partisan issue, that Republicans and Democrats are going to see that the future of this country is at stake and there needs to be some things done for the the good of uh, the future. Now, let's all be very clear about this. He is, in fact, stating this is a former CIA director who is saying that, in his opinion, it would be necessary. It is uh, a moral obligation of executive branch employees, which, of course, the CIA, the intelligence community is executive branch. It would be uh, necessary for them. It would be the moral choice for them to essentially defy the president because they don't like a choice that. Let's all be very clear on this is completely within his power to make. The president of the United States can fire a special counsel or he the deputy attorney general who serves the president of the United States can fire the uh, attorney general uh, or sorry, the uh, can fire the special counsel rather <laughs> getting a little sessions attorney general 
stuff uh, caught up into this conversation here. But I have to say, I think that this is indicative of the much more widespread mentality that existed in, in the federal bureaucracy when Trump came into office. And it's what a lot of Trump defenders refer to as the deep state. Uh, they look at this and they see, here's somebody, by the way, it wasn't just Brennan, you also had former DNI Clapper there, who clearly take incredibly negative views of President Trump. I mean, view him as a threat to the country and, and view him as, as being so beyond the pale and, and so horrendous that they are advocating for civil disobedience from civil servants or rather advocating for a nonviolent mutiny of executive branch employees, people who work in the executive branch who are part of the federal bureaucracy against the Trump administration to, to refuse his law. Now, I'm sure, of course, the Brennan defenders would jump in here and say, well, what he means is that there should be a resignation for anybody who takes who would take the order from Trump or from any of his people to fire the special counsel. And OK, that's the most favorable version of events here. But I also have to wonder, do you think that Brennan, Clapper, again, very senior, the two, really the two senior most intelligence officials of the Obama administration, do we think that they would object to the notion that there are people within the civil service side of the federal government, people within the bureaucracy, the deep state, who may choose to refuse Trump orders, even that are within it. When I say orders, I mean, I know this is not necessarily battlefield orders, but refuse a Trump director, refuse to do their jobs because they have a political difference with the president. I mean, what are the uh, what are the outer limits of this? Is it now considered ethical for people who take a, an oath to the American people and the Constitution? Is, is it now ethical for them to say, you know, I just really sure I took a job where I have a role to play for the American people, for their whatever it may be, for their defense or for any number of things. And I just hate the president so much that I think that it absolves me. It absolves me of my obligation to have to do what I'm told to do through the valid chain of command as an executive branch employee. It would seem to me that whether what we have here is an explicit justification for deep state actions against Trump or not, and I leave that to some of you listening as to whether you think that's a fair characterization of what Brennan has said, because uh, I know that you could you could interpret this in different ways. You could say that he's just referring to people refusing the order through resignation. And I am always a proponent of federal employees resigning when they believe that they have been told to do something that is unethical, uh, and, and whether it's in the military, intelligence community, or anywhere else in the government for that matter. I think we've become far too accustomed to government employees thinking that they can just wait until they leave government service. So, you know, their bills get paid, that wherever they may be, they can leave and maybe even write a book about it, go on TV. They get to be the hero after the fact, when really we need people who are in the bureaucracy to be willing to stand up and say, I will not do that because at that point in time. 
and they should be resigning as a result of it. But that's an extreme act. And it better not be because of something along the lines of, well, I think that Trump has a potty mouth and I don't like the things that he says. See, this is the real problem with Democrats. Trump is an existential threat to the United States. So there's a reason, there's a rationale in place for the entire executive branch to revolt, in a sense, and refuse Trump's orders. They don't view Trump as the legitimate president of the United States. They think that he colluded with Russia. They think that he cheated and that really the president should be Hillary. Therefore, any orders he gives, any executive action that he demands is on its face invalidated. This is this is something that is believed by many people, prominent people on the left. So it's in that context that Brennan's making these remarks. And firing the special counsel, it should be noted, they may dis- they may not like this, but shutting down the special counsel is in fact within the power of the Department of Justice to do. So if the DOJ did that and said, look, this isn't going anywhere or whatever the reason is that they gave, they have not in any way done something that is illegal, that is unconstitutional, and that would require a revolt from the executive branch. So yeah, I'm for people standing up and being willing to resign when they think that there has been something either ordered or there's something ongoing within the government that cannot stand, that cannot continue. But I also think that we need to understand, we need to keep in mind that for Democrats, the very existence of a Trump administration is grounds to object to all orders. And this is the this is where things get very dangerous. This is where the talk about undermining our democracy and all the grandstanding, all the self-indulgent, whiny uh, snowflakeism that we hear about, oh, you know, Trump is is going to be the end of this country and he's ruining this country. By the way, I mean, the country is actually doing well. But side note uh, that Trump is doing all these terrible things. All the stuff we hear about that doesn't ever seem to cross over. Or they don't make the same kinds of arguments about what would happen if people who are Democrats, who are ideologically leftists or progressives within the government, just decide that they're they're not going to obey anymore or that they're going to work at cross purposes from the president. You know, they are they are betraying their charge at that point. They are not fulfilling their obligations, their obligations to the American people, for which I should note they are being paid. Right? This is a job. They, people that work at DOJ or wherever, they don't have to do this. They can always resign. But what you notice from Brennan is he leaves open at least the possibility with what he said that it's not that they should resign. They should just refuse. They should bring the government to a halt. It's not just the Congress that has obstructionists now with the Democrats. You get the sense that there could be internal government sabotage from Democrats who are bent on doing everything in their power to destroy this administration or at least destroy its agenda. We're going to hit a quick break, your team. We'll be right back. Children of Men is a 2006 movie starring Clive Owen based on a novel, I believe. In It shows a future, a dystopian future, in which the world faces extinction because human beings are all infertile. There's mass infertility. And I haven't seen the movie, for full disclosure, uh, but I thought of it because I remember seeing the previews for it, the trailers for it, when this uh, Guardian's this Guardian news story came out today that had some pretty 
incredible and incredible in a sense that you don't believe it, not incredible like it's great, but some pretty shocking research that it uh, it goes into about how, well, we're going to talk about some reproductive issues here, folks. So if you have little ones listening, they may wish to, uh, this may be a time for them to uh, step out of the room, or maybe we can just, you know, tell them to put on the earmuffs for a second and uh, they, they won't hear this part of it. But Here's the story in The Guardian. This is medical stuff, not, not being gross. Uh, sperm counts among Western men have halved in the last 40 years. This is really significant uh, because this has uh, tie-ins, in my mind at least, to the population implosion issue that people are seeing now, the demographic trends, long-term demographic trends in a lot of countries, particularly industrialized first world countries. You have people who are waiting longer and longer to have children as well. Even if we try to turn this around, based on this study, which uh, seems to be so far uh, unchallenged and and pretty comprehensive, uh, it might be harder for future generations in industrialized countries to have children in the first place. Part of that is that we're having children when we are older and older, and from a pure fertility perspective, I've read a little bit on these issues as a uh, un- unmarried uh, 35-year-old man who would like to have a family. I've just uh, perused some of the uh, scientific literature on all this in my spare time. It gets harder as you get older, as both a man and a woman, but particularly for women, uh, it's more difficult to have children as uh, there is more. there are more years, more time on the, on the clock. Uh, this means that in societies where people are having fewer children, they're also having, it's, it's also more difficult to have children when they decide to. And so turning around the demographic trend of population implosion or sub-replacement numbers for a culture, for a society, uh, may be increasingly difficult. But just on a, on a more specific health-related level, why do we have a, an enormous drop-off of fertility in men in the Western world, in Europe and in America. And what's pretty scary here is that no one has any good answers. They think it may be, because remember, over 50% drop in your, well, in the sperm count for men in the Western world. That's substantial. We're not talking about a little change here or there in the overall population. 50% has real fertility implications for the overall population and they have no answers here. So if it's gone down 50% in just the last 40 years, so it's gone down uh, very quickly, an average of 1.4% a year, well, what is it going to look like in 40 years? And if we can't identify, and right now scientists have no idea, they cannot identify what the factors are that are making male fertility uh, more problematic. They say it may be... Uh, increased rates of obesity, it could be smoking, but uh, all, the smoking has been dropping off in Western society in recent years, and uh, o- obesity specifically, it's not clear how that would impact this, and they, they just, they don't know. I mean, the, the real answer is they don't know. So, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, when you speak to doctors who specialize in fertility, first of all, I know that in vitro fertilization, IVF is incredibly expensive just from hearing about it and reading about it. Um, but also male fertility is not very well understood. It just kind of works or unfortunately, in some cases, it doesn't when people want it to. Uh, but male fertility is not something that doctors, even urologists in the area 
seem to have a lot of answers on. In fact, some of the procedures that they will do to try and address infertility in men are uh, pretty have a pretty low success rate, and they're not really even sure why it would work or not work. I mean, when you get down into this, there are so many areas of science, uh, sp- specifically of medicine, where there are questions that really need answers. And I think there is a general perception out there that the knowledge base that our medical community is working with is much more uh, certain and much deeper than it is. And on fertility issues, you get a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. And when you see a 50% drop in male for, well, in the fertility of men as measured by, you know, how we make babies, uh, it's it's a real public health issue. I mean, it's it's a long-term cultural and social issue as well because of the demographic implications of this. But there's also no reason to necessarily believe that it won't continue to deteriorate. So what's it going to look like in 10 years? What's it going to look like in 20 years? Uh, And when you start to play that out in your mind and you don't have answers to this, that whole children of men uh, theme, that whole uh, plot line from that movie, which I heard was not a very good movie, by the way, so don't run out and see it. Uh, Although, I don't know, maybe some of you like it. I'm not sure. Uh, that seems like it's not such a completely out there crazy idea anymore. And, you know, I, I bring this up not to frighten us or anything, although talking about problems, you know, conflict is inter- interesting, right? Good guys, bad guys, problems posed, problems solved. That's that's the heart of storytelling. So, uh, but real problems like this, I think, should get much more attention. And instead, you know, you've got people that are talking about climate change in 100 years, Uh, This study of male fertility is more problematic to me for what the human race looks like and our situation 100 years from now than anything I have seen and that I find believable on climate change. We've we've got male fertility dropping off a cliff. No one knows why. And it's happening really quickly. Uh, Okay, that's something we should get answers to. Right. Oh, no. Let's have another. Let's have another lecture on the polar bears. You know, let's talk more about how uh, perhaps if we have more wind farms and ride bicycles or tricycles, if one is, or a unicycle, perhaps, if one is so inclined and lives in Brooklyn, uh, then maybe you can save the planet. But the greatest single asset to the planet, the most important thing on the planet is the human race. And when you look at the scientific basis for concern over the perpetuation of the species itself, I just I think that that's something that deserves a little more attention. And we can stop focusing on taking shorter showers and maybe wonder why it's getting harder and harder for men to father children in industrialized countries, at least, which is where they did these studies. So I think that this is uh, unsettling, and it's a place where we should devote more resources, and we need more answers about the science here. Uh, All right, team, we've got a big third hour coming up in just a few. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Incredible gathering of mostly young patriots, mostly young. I'm especially proud to speak to you as the honorary president of the Boy Scouts of America. 
was paved with the patriotic American values and traditions they learned in the Boy Scouts. And someday, many years from now, when you look back on all of the adventures in your lives, you will be able to say the same. I got my start as a scout, just like these incredibly great people that are doing such a good job for our country. There we had our president of the United States, who is the uh, honorary president of the Boy Scouts of America, giving a speech uh, last night to the uh, two assembled scouts of, uh, well, Boy Scouts of America, uh, estimated to be tens of thousands in attendance. Trump talked a bit about that. Uh, and it was uh, funny. You had Ryan Zinke, who was also a former Navy SEAL, who's now the uh, minister of the um, minister, secretary of the interior, the minister of the interior. Oh, I say, old chap. No, it's, that's uh, other countries have ministries. We have departments and agencies. Uh, but he he was there in in uniform. And I, I have to admit that I do not know much about the whole Boy Scout uh, phenomenon. I was a, a Boy Scout in New York City for a very short time. I went on one uh, overnight with my dad. It was a father-son overnight trip. We went out into the wilds of New Jersey. And I'm pretty sure we were like, I'm not going to say that we were in the woods behind a, you know, 7-Eleven or something. But, I mean, it wasn't exactly we, – we weren't about to see uh, timber wolves and uh, grizzly bears, okay? I can tell you that much. It was – yeah, it was not that far from New York City. Um, but I did some scout stuff. I don't really – I think I got a couple badges. I was so young I barely remember now, and I'm not someone who is – I would not be your very first choice. Look, I, you know, know thyself, right? I would not be your very first choice for the person to be on an episode of the show Survivor with you or one of those uh, outdoor shows where uh, there's even one called Naked and Afraid where you try to survive completely naked in the woods. It's a reality TV show. Uh, so they've really extended this reality TV survival uh, idea into, well, into some pretty startling territory anyway so they had this speech uh, last night the scouts were there and you you can't have donald trump give a speech without people in the media of course finding some terrible fault in it uh, without them deciding that there must be something horrible going on here because you know donald trump is giving a speech you had i i almost couldn't believe it because i saw this first on i saw the reactions to this on twitter but you had the uh, former acting CIA director under Bush tweet out that Trump's Boy Scout speech had the feel of a third world authoritarian's youth rally, which is really just a more genteel way of saying it was like a Hitler youth rally, which which the former acting CIA director did not write. But there were he was certainly alluding to it. And there were other people who were on uh, social media, who just, of course, went right to Trump is holding a something that feels like a Hitler youth rally. Because there's, you know, even if they have to uh, critique the Boy Scouts in a tremendously unfair, not a critique, that's not the right word, even if they have to slander the Boy Scouts in a really disgraceful fashion, there are a lot of people that any destruction you can do against Trump it's all acceptable collateral damage as long as it hurts Trump. If you hurt Trump, then whatever you're doing is justified, even if you are putting down the Boy Scouts. 
Of course, you had some of the usual anti-Trumpers not saying anything about the Boy Scouts per se, but just saying that Trump's speech was, well, here's Bill Kristol. He's so far beyond the usual bounds of even vulgar politicians' vulgarity. So, yes, you do have uh, some conservatives as well uh, who are decrying Trump's speech to the Boy Scouts uh, of America. Now, there was a part of it where he did go into some talk about his victory and election night and how all of that went. But do you remember that incredible night with the maps and the Republicans are red and the Democrats are blue and that map was so red it was unbelievable and they didn't know what to say. And you know, we have a tremendous disadvantage in the Electoral College. Popular vote is much easier. We have a trip because New York, California, Illinois, you have to practically run the East Coast. And we did. We won Florida. We won South Carolina. We won North Carolina. We won Pennsylvania. We won and won. So when they said there is no way to victory, there is no way to 270. You know, I went to Maine four times because it's one vote and we won. But we won. So, yeah, he, he talked about some stuff that I'm not sure you would expect uh, the Boy Scouts to care all that much about. Although I will, I will note that the Boy Scouts were cheering very loudly for this president. Uh, and they, I believe they booed Hillary Clinton at one point, too. I mean, it, it was uh, it was great stuff. But the complaints that weren't just about substance, there, there were complaints out there about how this and I just saw all the snarky journalism stuff going on. As this was happening and right afterwards with the commentary, there were complaints about how this is a violation of the Boy Scouts code and, oh, good heavens, what will we ever do? This is a violation of the Boy Scouts 501c3 status as a nonprofit because they can't engage in political activity. If the president of the United States, who is the uh, unofficial, uh, who is the honorary president of the Boy Scouts of America, if he can't address the Boy Scouts. What has this country come to? Someone else pointed out, and I did this, this was inter- interesting to me, that I think uh, you had all the last three presidents before Trump were members of the Boy Scouts. Trump was, in fact, not ever a Boy Scout, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, but the 501c3 issue, that came up, and no surprise, of course, you had people who were saying that this is unsanctioned or unallowed, should not be allowed political activity by the president of the United States, that he's politicizing the Boy Scouts. And I just once again like to point out that the journalists who think they are so clever because, oh, look, we've got Trump now. He's violating the 501c3 status of the Boy Scouts of America. The journalists who take that position never stop to think for a second about, hold on a minute, um, isn't Planned Parenthood a 501c3? Oh, but Planned Parenthood is, or what, are we Are we going to pretend that Planned Parenthood is non-political? We're going to take that, that tone, that tact on Planned Parenthood, uh, which, and by the way, I'm by no, in no way comparing a, an organization that does such great stuff and so much public service like the Boy Scouts to an organization that is so destructive and evil like Planned Parenthood, but they're both, 501c3s, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, that there could be a uh, such a, a broadly interpreted version of what constitutes political activity and public service and public good that it would allow uh, Planned Parenthood, 
an organization founded by a eugenicist, Margaret Sanger, uh, and for the purpose of, of eugenics, by the way, that that could be covered under what is in place in the IRS code to promote uh, civil society and, and good things in our country. Uh, but uh, there's just no self-awareness whatsoever for journalists on this matter. They, they see an opportunity to try and slam Trump, and they'll even expose themselves in the process. This is really an addendum to my point before about how any collateral damage, if you have to mock the Boy Scouts to get at Trump, journalists, Democrats will do it. Also, if they have to, if journalists have to expose themselves to mockery and ridicule, if journalists, in order to get at Trump, are going to put themselves in positions where some of them will even get fired. We've seen that happen in their rush to run bad stories, to damning stories about this administration. If they have to do that, that is a choice that they will make. Some of them are even willing to hurt themselves. Journalists, who are a very narcissistic, very self-involved bunch overall, they are willing to do damage to themselves and to their career prospects so that they can harm the Trump administration. That's how much the anti-Trump psychosis has taken over. That's how deep this runs uh, in the mainstream media's veins, that they will do things that are damaging. They will accept themselves as collateral damage in the anti-Trump propaganda war. And this, their responses to the Boy Scouts, I think, were just another example of that, because the media response was ridiculous, and they should be ridiculed for it. All right, we're going to hit a break here and talk to you about much more. Stay with me. Public safety is an area where you think that politics can at least be somewhat tempered, maybe put aside, where there can be a consensus on what's most important. Uh, It should be public safety, right? There shouldn't be a whole lot of discussion or dispute about that. But in our current culture of identity politics and uh, political correctness, this forces people to sometimes adopt uh, postures and policies and exposes a mentality that is just, well, worthy of complete ridicule. And this is, uh, in this case of New York, I've seen this in the past, where they will talk about on New York One, which is a channel that feels like you're watching something out of, uh, from behind the, from behind the Iron Curtain, like the, the Soviet Union in the 1980s, where they're just always talking about local workers' unions and, te- and, and teachers' unions and going on with the community activist groups, and you're just like, where am I? I mean, this is not stuff that anybody really would care about. It's the localized, the most local of local news. Uh, They occasionally will report something that is crime-related, and I've seen them do this. So I've seen these news reports. I'm not generalizing based on what I've read. I've actually been sitting there watching, and they'll say, you know, attempted, uh, attempted sexual assault in Prospect Park. Suspect was wearing a uh, hooded sweatshirt and jeans, 5'10", 185 pounds. And you're like, that's really? Because based on the news report, there's more. Uh, the person who was attacked clearly gave a, a some description of the person, and you can tell, and occasionally they'll even have a sketch, a police sketch of the alleged perpetrator, and they'll show the sketch and they will not describe anything else other than 5'10 and 185 pounds. And you're just left to be 
oh, okay, so we can't have a real description of who the assailant may be because it's it's insensitive. There's a a racial insensitivity that they are attaching to what should just be a public safety issue, which is here is an incident. We're reporting on the incident. The person is still at large. We would like to find the person. The person should be arrested. Here's everything that we know. You have the news media now will say, well, you know, we don't really want to we don't really want to get into too much of the details. In the context of what's happened with some Syrian refugees in Canada, this came up where there were a, a, a number of Syrian refugees who had groped very young girls, sexually assaulted very young girls in a water park. And there was a whole debate among Canadian media outlets about whether or not they should even identify the alleged perpetrator of those assaults against girls who are, I think, like 12 or 13 years old, very young girls, whether they should even identify those Syrian those Syrian refugees in the reporting because it would cast aspersions on all Syrian refugees. That was their argument on it. And, and, and of course, it turned out that later on, this all came out, and then there was a big to-do about how, why does the media think that it should censor the truth from us because of its own political biases, and it's very troubling to see this. Here's a story that did not get, of course, a whole lot of national attention, uh, but I think it is indicative of broader uh, mindset issues. It is indicative of a more sweeping problem with what we're able to talk about and what we are not. There, uh, the, the BART transit system, which is the uh, mass transit system for the San Francisco Bay Area, um, has had a series of events recently, including one violent events where uh, 60 young people got on board a BART train. It's like a subway. I think it also goes outside. I've never been on the BART. But they got on board this train, and they robbed seven people, and they attacked two others, 60 of them. And this was a flash robbery mob. And there have been a couple of other high-profile incidents where large groups of, quote, young people were involved in robberies and assaults on train riders. Well, this is on video because there are security cameras in the BART subway and uh, mass transit system. And so there was, of course, for the purposes of identifying suspects, as well as seeing what the full scale of the problem is, there were those who were saying, okay, we need to release the surveillance footage of these incidents that have gotten so much attention. And this will, I'm sure, not surprise some of you to hear, there were uh, senior uh, government officials, well, senior local government officials for the San Francisco Bay Area transit system, who did not want to release the footage. And this came out in a memo. So we really get to know what the reasoning here, what the rationalizations for suppressing the truth were in this case. And here's what was written by BART Assistant General Manager Carrie Hamill to let people know, and this was all profiled in uh, the Daily Mail, to let people know why they couldn't or why they shouldn't see the footage of these assaults. Quote, Disproportionate elevation of crimes on transit interfaces with local media in such a way to unfairly affect and characterize riders of color, leading to sweeping generalizations in media reports and a high level of racially insensitive commentary directed toward the district through our social media channels, email, and call centers. Uh, so this is a memo saying that 
people do racist stuff when they see large groups of clearly these were minorities, uh, um, black and or Hispanic uh, that were in this group. So there is this fear that if they release the footage of minorities publicly, it will cause an outcry. Right. And the reason that I know that we're talking about minorities here is because they said they're talking about riders of color and not wanting to get any more specific than that. But they're saying that there's a racial insensitivity here. So I, I think we can all come to the very obvious conclusion that they don't want people to see video of large uh, groups of a, of a pack of, in one case, what was it, 60 people. Uh, rushing onto a train and assaulting and robbing people because of the outcry that it would cause. One uh, board member for the BART, the Bay Area Transit System, uh, responded to this by saying the following, and this is all in an email exchange. I don't understand what role the color of one's skin plays in this issue. Can you please explain? And then there was, uh, you know, I'm sure there was a... Uh, sense that, well, yeah, this is a public safety issue. Uh, and this person wrote, if this is, or rather, this is BART, people are sort of trapped in this station for a while, and they have a right to see what could potentially happen. What is the priority of BART? Is the safety of the passenger, of all passengers, is that a lesser priority than the race bias issue? Uh this is the answer to that question. In the San Francisco Bay Area, the safety of people riding mass transit is, in fact, less important to the people charged with protecting that safety, or at least the bureaucrats who are supposed to be working with local police, who are really the ones charged with protecting that safety. But it, it is less important to them that people are safe and know the risks and also can help identify perpetrators than that they avoid possibly seeming racially insensitive, seeming like they are giving racial offense to one group or another just by reporting or showing the truth, by showing what happened. Um, and this, you, you see this with terror, jihadist uh, Islamic terrorism in this country. You see this with a whole number of issues where the left doesn't want to create any problems for its uh, favorite victim classes and so they will even suppress the truth. They will even deny the public the right to safety information, right? So public safety will be put in a secondary position below protection of identity politics principles and diversity and multicultural, multiculturalism is our strength, all those mantras, all that stuff. That's the most important thing to the modern bureaucrat in a liberal city area like San Francisco. All right, we are going to uh, talk a bit about what makes you happy. Can it be money? Well, somewhat. We'll hit that and more coming up. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. I know it's an old saying, but I've always been a little dubious about money can't buy happiness and money can't buy love. Uh, it, it definitely makes things a little bit easier. I think we could all agree that that's the case. And this, of course, is a place where social scientists like to occasionally do a bit of research to back up whether or not one can say it's true that money does not buy happiness. Uh, poverty is, is pretty successful at, at getting you misery, I think. But, 
Yeah, my money doesn't make you happy. I've known a lot of miserable rich people. You grow up in New York City, you're around this stuff all the time. But the latest study on this, I think, was interesting. It says that, and this is according to new research just published by a team from Harvard Business School, uh, surveying uh, almost 4,500 people from the U.S., Canada, Denmark, and the Netherlands. And they asked people uh, what their response was or how they felt after paying other people to do, quote, unenjoyable daily tasks to increase their free time. And what they found out from this study is that, yes, in fact, it is the case for a lot of people that if you pay someone else to do the things that you don't want to do, which, of course, also just gives you more time to do what you do want to do in general, you are someone with greater greater life satisfaction, which I think is just a, a one way of saying happier, right? You're more satisfied with your life if you pay someone else to do stuff for you. And this, I should note, is going to become much easier as a result of the sharing economy that we have. We have so many apps right now. You can download any number of them to your phone. And if you haven't, by the way, download the iHeart radio apps. You can listen to Buck Saxon with America Now anywhere across the country that you have a cell phone or a cell or Wi-Fi signal, side note. But there are all these apps where you can just pay someone to do stuff for you. And TaskRabbit is one of them here in New York City. There are many others across the country. And it just allows you to essentially outsource the annoying stuff in your day-to-day And someone else, of course, gets paid and they can do a number of these tasks and it becomes either supplementary or perhaps even primary income, depending on how many of them that they do. I have to say, we do spend an inordinate amount of time, most of us, dealing with stuff we just don't want to do. Uh, There's a lot of things that are part of day-to-day life that I think people would much rather be able to find someone else to specialize in and take it off their hands. You know, one thing, speaking of money buying happiness, if I had the funds, I think having a a personal chef or at least a chef delivery service, that would be high on my list. Because as much as I like to cook, it takes a lot of time. And cleaning, by the way, is another area where, I mean, I spend, my apartment is, and some of you are going to, you're laughing right now, and you should, you should laugh, you should have some fun with this one. Uh, it is, I think, just sub 400 square feet where I live. is under 400 square feet. Some of you have closets that are bigger than my apartment, literally cl- closets that are bigger than my apartment, I'm sure. Uh, some of you, it would be that, which would be, look, it would be a big closet, let's not pretend. But you definitely have like a work shed or any number of other places. Maybe you have a solarium or a... Uh, a greenhouse or something that's not for commercial purposes, bigger than my apartment. Anyway, I spend uh, a lot of time just trying to keep the Freedom Hut New York City, to keep my apartment relatively tidy and clean. And of course, Molly always thinks that I'm just barely getting by in terms of my cleanliness. So I'm not somebody who is great at the uh, keeping, keeping everything neat and tidy, but it's really hard when you have all this stuff stacked up. My point being, if there was a way to easily have someone come in and pay them a reasonable wage to do not just my apartment, but let's say other apartments in my building. or And, and that's 
become a business model, right? That's become, if I had more disposable income, I'd probably be a part of that business model. But this is what people do now. And it increases, back to this survey, this study out of Harvard Business School, it increases your life satisfaction. So if you can pay people, because I do not like cleaning, if you can pay people to do the tasks from your life that you don't want to do, you are happier. So this is one of those places where having additional income, I think, does make you happier with what's going on in your day to day. But the study had some interesting, there's some interesting takeaways from it as well, that the positive feeling of paying someone to do a chore or a task you don't want to do is much stronger than a similar feeling that you may get from a commercial purchase, from going out and buying something for yourself. I know some ladies in my life have referred to this as retail therapy in the past, where you just go out and you you buy that handbag, or if you're a guy, I don't know, you go buy that new set of golf clubs or chainsaw or, you know, man stuff. Uh, you go out there and buy that. That feeling doesn't last as long, um, and it doesn't have as much of an impact on your sense of your own happiness and well-being. And this is largely because one of the places where we have our greatest stress is time management and that our day-to-day time management, and I know about this from my own life, I just feel like every day I wake up, I've got to prepare, obviously, for this three-hour radio show, and that is my, my primary responsibility every day. But I also do a lot of research. I do TV. I, uh, I write on occasion. I should honestly be writing more. This is one of the places where, and I know some of you are like, Buck, where's that book? I'm working on it. But this is one of the places where I find that I uh, do stress myself out. And I'm sure a lot of you have the same feeling in whatever field you're in or if you're someone who just is in charge of the home, if you're a, a homemaker, you feel like there's always more that you can be doing. And so relieving that stress by having someone else take up that responsibility for you is a very, well, has positive effects on your well-being, on your sense of your own uh, joy and and the way that you view your day-to-day existence. So once again, money can buy some measure of happiness in this limited case. I'm not trying to expand this beyond what the study says, but it is possible that money can make you a little happier. And this is because of time stress, one of the biggest things that we all deal with day in and day out. I should also note that this was not a function of people from different socioeconomic classes. They tried to, in, in this study, they tried to control for how much money you have, right? Because it's one thing, if, you're, if this study is just going to say that, yeah, having a, a cook, a maid, a driver, a masseuse, a personal assistant is going to make you happier because of time stress. Well, sure, that's not, but that's not particularly useful. But what this was saying is that even if you control for income level, so whatever you can afford at your level of income, whatever, however much money you have that's disposable income, whatever you can afford to pay someone else to take some of these annoying things off your plate is a good investment for you. And based on this study, uh, it'll make you happier and less stressed out. So maybe you can only pay someone to come by and help with your yard once a week. Maybe you can only pay somebody to come help clean the house or work on the windows or the basement or whatever once a month. That's a good expenditure for you compared to other people in your same earning, uh, same earning percentage or same earning uh, ratio. Um, I'm trying to find a good way to say this. Who earn as much money as you. There you go. Um, that's a, a good usage of your time, a good expenditure of your resources. So hire people to do annoying stuff for you when you can uh, and you'll be happier. That's, that's the takeaway from the study, which I can totally understand. There's a lot of things that I would want 
uh, taken off of, of my plate. And uh, I just wish one day I had the disposable income to do that, and I would start. So money can buy happiness in limited amounts. Um, I've seen other studies, by the way, this is an aside, but the studies that indicate that you, um, you, up to a certain level, money really does actually increase your happiness and satisfaction. And then above that level, it becomes less and less and less. And it's, a, the good news is it's a pretty low figure uh, overall in terms of what you think would buy happiness. If you really have the money to pay for your, you know, pay for where you live, pay for the food you want to eat, and you feel like you're not uh, running into debt and overly stressed about your day-to-day, you're, you know, you're pretty happy, tends to be the case. If you're running deep into debt or you feel like you are just one bad week away from economic ruin, uh, then, yeah, then you, you need more money, and it's tough to be happy in those circumstances. But maybe those studies will get into more another, uh, another time. Uh, can money buy you love? Well, that's one that we'll have to wait. Of course, the answer to that is no. I'm not some cynic. Uh, although, if you do see some of the very uh, well-known celebrity couples, you're like, hmm, I wonder if that guy's or gal's enormous bankroll had anything to do with that attraction. But once again, a discussion for another time. Uh, team, go to uh, BucksXon.com to check out our gear. T-shirts are flying off the uh, shelves, so to speak. We'd love you to join the T-shirt squad of Team Buck. Um, we're going to have more with you in just a few. Oh, BucksXon.com slash Store is where you go for that. BuckSaxon.com slash store. And we will be right back. As a conservative in New York City, this is a story that uh, hits home and uh, really makes me mad. Uh, Kat Timpf is a host on Fox News, The Specialist, the new show they have that has taken over uh, the time slot where they used to have the five. The five is now 9 p.m. There's been a lot of shifting over at Fox News. But but Kat is one of the co-hosts of that show. And I remember having her on radio uh, many times earlier on in her career as a guest. And uh, she's always very polite and friendly whenever I see her over at, at Fox News. She was, uh, according to all reports, and also I saw this pretty close to when it happened on Twitter last night as she was telling the world about what happened. She was in Brooklyn, which for those who don't know, is a hotbed of the most progressive leftist mindset you could possibly find. I mean, the, the, the people in Brooklyn, the mentality in much of Brooklyn is similar to what you would find in the Berkeley faculty lounge. It's as left-wing as any place in the country. Um, in fact, Williamsburg, which is known as a place full of hipsters, which is not really a term that's used that much anymore, but it generally referred to people who are part of this uh, yuppie urban culture that involved ironic facial hair and uh, tattoos and dressing in a particular style of skinny jeans. And I I can't even really define a hipster. A hipster is like a lot of other things. You know a hipster when you see a hipster. Uh, So Brooklyn is full of, well, full of hipsters, but also it's a very progressive place. And it's very, it's look, there's a reason why Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters we're in Brooklyn. And it, if it were its own city, it's a borough of New York City, which has five boroughs. I'm coming to you right now from Manhattan and in fact, lower Manhattan, which and pretty cool part of Manhattan, if I may say so, because I'm a hip guy who drinks lattes and hangs out, but not a hipster. Uh, but Brooklyn 
is a place that has a very left-wing politics, and it is the fourth, if it were a city on its own, it would be the fourth largest city in the country after New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. So it's a big place, too. Anyway, you get a lot of self-righteous, sanctimonious, progressive crazies running around Brooklyn. Last night, back to our news, news peg here, our news story, last night Kat Timpf was in Brooklyn, and she was there for a campaign event for a friend, and she was in a, uh, a bar or a, a, I think it might have been a, a pool hall, but she was in some kind of a public place. And a guy walked in. Yeah, Union Pool in Williamsburg. I don't know what that is, if that's, if that's actually a place where they have a pool or they play pool or anyway. But it was in Williamsburg, which is the, the belly of the progressive beast. That much I can definitely say. Uh, Williamsburg is... It's so cool that the people in Williamsburg don't even know how cool they are. They can't hear you over the awesome. They can't hear you over the extremeness of their coolness. But she was there last night, surrounded by Democrats, of course, in terms of the neighborhood. And somebody came in, and now Cat is a is a blonde-haired. I, I'm of course not going to be ungentlemanly and guess her weight, but she is a slender and and petite lady. And some guy came in and poured a bottle of water on her head clearly targeting her, and walked out. Now, I know that this is where, of course, as a guy, I my first question is, how come some of the other guys there didn't immediately take matters into their own hands? And I know that that, you know, violence doesn't solve things, but there's a part of me that's like, well, and I'm not, I don't know Cat very well. We've just worked together a few times. But, I mean, I can tell you that if any of my female colleagues from media ones that I know incredibly well and are very and very good friends with down to people that I have only, you know, or don't know at all. It could be a complete stranger. It doesn't matter. Any woman in this in this uh, circumstance, in this situation that I saw assaulted in this way. And I think that part of you that as, as a guy, that part of you that might have been termed at one point chivalrous or just decent. And now, of course, that's probably hyper masculine. And even talking about this as a form of mansplaining you would intervene uh, because you have a guy who is clearly more physically um, imposing and threatening to this young woman who is uh, assaulting her. I mean, you know, pouring a bottle of water on her head. Look, I know that afterwards, too, you can say, oh, it was just a bottle of water. He didn't strike her, which if he did, I mean, this is still an assault, but he didn't strike her. Uh, As an aside, I think I've told you this before. One of my friends who was the head of the college Republicans at Amherst College and was a good friend of mine, uh, he had someone come up to him at, towards the end of the year at a graduation parties and wasn't even a student at our school, but just knew him, knew about him because he was a well-known conservative on campus. And this kid was very small, the, my friend, uh, very small, very slight, and wore glasses and got punched in the face and destroyed his glasses. That's how hard he got hit. Just punched him in the face, blindsided him for no reason. I wasn't there. Otherwise, I would have uh, intervened afterwards. I was nowhere to be found, unfortunately, because he was a, a good friend of mine. He actually was the coxswain on my crew team, and I was one of his rowers. So uh, this would not have gone, this transgression would not have gone unpunished. Anyway, back to Cat and what happened in Williamsburg. So this guy pours water on her, and I know that there's this immediate impulse to say, well, it, it could have been worse. And But that in and of itself is actually an indicator of how stressful and how anxiety-provoking and honestly, scary this would be for someone like Kat. Uh, okay, the guy poured water on her. He could have poured something else. And, and I'm not trying to take this down a really dark, frightening path. But 
you know, you don't get to just walk up to people in public and physically assault them. You don't get to pour things on people. You don't get to spit in their face. You know, you don't get to do these things in a civilized society. And that this happened to a prominent young female. Uh, she's actually a libertarian, not really a conservative, but doesn't matter, on the right or viewed as being on the right because she's at Fox News. It's just indicative of this broader mindset of these uh, progressive snowflakes out there who can't handle their opposing points of view and will actually act out and be violent and break the law. So I hope this punk, whoever he is, is found, and I hope that there are some real sanctions against him for this, both legal and social. People should really uh, hold this person to account, and they should be, this person should be shunned, this guy, for being a complete jerk. But I'm sad to say I think that there probably will be idiots in Williamsburg who are you know, Obama, Hillary uh, voters, maybe even Bernie Sanders voters, who will think that this was, you know, somehow justice. And it's just pathetic, and it's a disgrace. And I feel sorry for Kat, and I just hope she realizes that she's got people all across the country, and including here in the Freedom Hut, who have her back 100%. Uh, the progressives, man, they, they are the violent ones. They're the ones that just can't handle the debate, can't handle the discussion. It's just true time and time again. Uh, team, please uh, do download the podcast, share it with a friend, Buck Sexton, with America Now is the show on iTunes. Just type that in. You can click subscribe. Even if you are a live listener, if you have iTunes, please do check it out there. You can also always listen on the iHeartRadio app, and I hope you do. BuckSexton.com is our website. You can buy merchandise there. Go to BuckSexton.com slash store. We're going to have a lot to talk about, obviously, tomorrow night with this continuing healthcare battle and much more. Until then, my friends, an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. Shields high.